Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show welcome to this wednesday edition of the dan proft show thank you for joining us follow us at danproftshow.com Get podcasts there, as well as at Spotify and iTunes, on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including on Parlor. And we begin tonight with, um, you know, the revolt against lockdown policies. Yesterday, in particular, New York City restaurant tours and restaurant workers—the combination of the two—put a marker down, holding a uh, big press conference slash rally. With a number of restaurateurs speaking, a number of uh, trade association people speaking, and uh, uh, folks calling not just for the ability to work, but uh, you know, calling on both uh, St. Andrew of COVID-19 in 2020 as well as Congress to act if you're not going to let me run my business or earn a living. Uh, here was uh, the sort of situation in New York framed out by a gentleman who is uh, uh, a representative of a Latino restaurant association and and, uh, represents uh, Latino-owned businesses, restaurants, nightclubs. Two-thirds of New York restaurants said they are likely to close by the end of the year. Without a comprehensive relief package by our government, a survey of New York City Hospital Alliance also here today showed that 87% of businesses were unable to pay their full rent in August. And when conducted again just last month, 88% of business were not able to pay their full rent in October. Members of our association cite up to 80% of reduction in business compared to before the pandemic. 60 to 80% decrease in outdoor dining since the beginning of the fall. The situation continues to get more and more dire and are shutting down our indoor dining during the holidays when New York City restaurants are providing the safety measure that working the straw that broke the camel's back. The straw that broke the camel's back, and um, some of the camels spoke, as it were, uh, restaurateurs, uh, uh, immigrants, uh, women of color, right? These are supposedly the uh, supposedly center cut for the left, right? This is who they uh, run to represent. doesn't seem like it. Not that uh, they mer- they're making it political. They're making about survival, their business, and their employees. I listened to this woman, who I believe was an immigrant from the Dominican Republic, uh, her situation, having to lay off more than 80% of her employees. My dream was always to have my own business. I struggled with a corporate job for some time, saved my pennies, and finally was able to open up my own establishment. When I did, it was only five employees, including myself. Today, I employ 25 employees, but since COVID-19 hit, from 25, I'd had to reduce to only four employees. In May, I ventured out into a second establishment, right next to Il Soleil, 
once COVID hit, as I said, it's been reduced to takeout and deliveries. My sales have dropped to 80%. I've been forced to release 22 of those employees, 22 families that are struggling right now, that can't pay their rent, that can't put food on their tables. We are so hopeful when indoor dining was allowed again to try to make it afloat. But now that we're unable to pay our rent due to the shutdown, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose everything altogether. Uh, These individuals also speak to the coming reckoning of with respect to commercial real estate, but we'll set that topic aside for a second. I mean, the important thing here is you're putting a human face on the economic devastation. And uh, it's not sensible either, as uh, one restaurateur uh, made the point. Uh, He was uh, an individual who organized the outdoor dining initiative in New York City. The the current regulations being imposed by Governor Cuomo and by Mayor de Blasio don't make any sense. Just like schools, we know that restaurants are not the super spreaders. We need to be smart about how we're making policy based on fact, and that is not happening today. So we're standing here today making sure that we look out for the best interests of our restaurants. Yeah, uh, right. Again, uh, less than 2% of the spread and a shutdown of dining, of all indoor dining. And uh, a snowstorm in New York will take care of the outdoor dining for now. Shutdown of all indoor and outdoor dining in California, which we'll get to in a second. But one more case study, one more real-world example. Uh, This woman has built a little empire for herself. 11 restaurants, more than 200 employees listen to um, her plight and who she's first concerned about, too, important. It breaks my heart that all this family is not going to have money, is not going to have fun to buy a Christmas gift for the kids. All the employees that I have, they have kids. And the only thing that I'm asking Cuomo to please, to please, if if we're going to stay close to provide some funding for us, how we gonna have? Well, how I'm gonna handle all this pressure that I have? I have 11 restaurants. I have all these landlords calling me every single day, every single time, asking me when I'm gonna pay my rent. What, what message that I have for them? What message do all my employees gonna have for the landlords? Please, we need your support, everyone. We need to send the message to the right person. He need to listen to us. He needs to listen to us. We want our restaurant to be open back again. We want to work. Good luck uh, with getting the listen, but I'm hearing the message loud and clear. And to a speaker, we want to work. We want to run our business, meaning I want to work. My employees want to work. We want to work. We're not looking for handouts. We're not looking for a bailout. But the flip side is, and this is how the government puts these folks in a bit of a trick bag. I mean, if you're not going to allow me to run my business... Right, because I'm not an essential worker. To, to me, I am. To my family, I am. My business is essential to me and my family. But to you, I'm not essential. So you're going to prohibit me from working. Well, then that's a government taking, they would argue, I think persuasively. And so you have to compensate me. But they don't want to be in the position of having to deal with the government for their subsistence. But interestingly, I think a lot of those politicians want them to be precisely in that position. So there was, as part of that press conference and rally, an appeal for passage of the so-called Restaurant Act, which has uh, more than 50 co-sponsors in the Senate and some 200 co-sponsors in the House. These would provide stabilization grants specifically for the restaurant industry, which would cover the difference between their 2019 revenues and their projected revenues for 2020, 
while subtracting any payroll protection program money, any economic injury, disaster loan money that the recipients received. They wouldn't have to pay back the grants unless they closed their business before the end of 2020, in which case they would have to return unspent funds. So that's the gist of it, $120 billion. And by the way, those, you know, if you're going to force theaters and uh, other businesses in the arts and entertainment sector, the airlines, you know, they're proponents of that too. But, you know, getting everybody queued up to get their, uh, well, recompense for the taking the government has made, it seems to be the least efficient way to do it. Uh, and, um, and I think these restaurateurs get it. But they're dealing with unreasonable people and uh, increasingly necessarily callous policies. In, in California, listen to this, CBS affiliate in Sacramento reporting. On businesses in Sacramento and ostensibly the rest of the state because they're all under the same order, being held responsible for patrons who order takeout, come in and get their takeout, and then eat outside. Now, their outside dining areas aren't open, but it doesn't stop the lives of others, minders, from putting a call into code enforcement to say, hey, I see somebody uh, eating outside uh, Joe's restaurant. You know, why don't you go harass Joe? I mean, this is a sickness. The restaurateur is... uh, not respond, you know, the restaurants are saying, look, I can't control what people do when they take food out of my establishment. My outdoor dining area is not open. But if somebody wants to sit in front of my restaurant on a, on a, a sidewalk or in a public park next to my restaurant or some such thing, what do you want me to do about it? Well, listen to the CBS reporter who talked to uh, local and state officials, what they what their expectation is of restaurateurs who they've you know effectively shut down or shut down to. 20% capacity for those that can do uh, a, a brisk takeout business. Now we reached out to Sacramento County Public Health and we were told that restaurants should be educating their customers that food is for takeout only and should not be eaten on site. We also reached out to the state and they say that right now COVID-19 is spreading so rapidly that it's even a risk just to step outside your home. Back to you guys. Your responsibility as a restaurateur in California now is to be a sentinel of the state and repeat the state's propaganda to your patrons on the way out the door. Oh, and by the way, uh, we're also going to try and get rid of your customers while we're at it by telling everybody to stay inside, even the takeout customers. Nobody go outside. Well, why don't you just shut down the whole place altogether? Uh, the, the, the more progress we make in combating the virus through therapeutics and now vaccines, the more draconian the measures inflicted upon people by those politicians with authoritarian impulses. Isn't the, that inverse proportion interesting? Who takes every kind of people To make what life's about, yeah It takes every Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, My concluding statement in the last segment was this sort of inverse proportional dynamic between the progress we're making combating the infections, treating the infections, combating the virus, treating the infections, and the lockdown restrictions being imposed by politicians. So we've made so much, uh, you know, we've greatly decreased the case mortality rate. 
because of understanding better how to treat COVID infections. And now, of course, as of this week, we have the Pfizer vaccine distribution occurring with Moderna not far behind. The projection that we could have 100 million people vaccinated by the end of February from the Trump administration. And and what do we have happening in uh, lockdown in bus states? I mean, just a a little, uh, James Bovard uh, over at the American Institute for Economic Research provides a nice little thumbnail sketch to give you a sense of it. The more restrictive and arbitrary, I would argue, policies than even we had at the height of the outbreak when we knew less this spring. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti banning all necessary travel, including without limitation, travel on foot, bicycle, scooter, motorcycle, automobile, or public transit. On foot. Or he ordered all residents living in the city to remain in their homes, forcing businesses that require in-person attendance to shut down. He, uh, of course, exempted participating in an in-person outdoor protest while wearing a face covering, maintaining social distancing, and observing the L.A. County protocol for public demonstrations. I mean, does this sound like America? Oh, and of course, per that uh, the viral video, the uh, shutdown order contained the exemption, an exemption for people who work in music, film, and television production. Yeah. KKK Northam in Virginia. Mr., uh, you don't have to be in pews in order to worship. All Virginians must stay indoors from midnight until 5 a.m. with narrow exceptions for people traveling to work or for someone suffering in a public emergency. Well, that that's nice. So if I have a medical event sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., I'm allowed to call for an ambulance and go to a hospital. We, I appreciate that, Governor. Bovard asks, if Northam has the right to ban people leaving their homes for five hours a day, why would he not have a right to lock everyone up 24-7 until everyone gets a mandatory vaccine? Hmm. Why, indeed. This may be the best one yet, probably, and probably the most underreported in terms of the arbitrariness of this all. Tell me this is uh, data and science driven. Delaware Governor John Carney, stores larger than 100,000 feet can have only 20% occupancy. Stores between 5,000 and 100,000 square feet can have 30% occupancy. Stores less than 5,000 feet and churches and funeral services can have 40% occupancy. But different rules apply if it is a gathering of people instead of customers coming in off the street. In that case, indoor gatherings of businesses must be limited to the lesser of 30% of the venue's stated fire capacity or 10 people. Delaware gyms are permitted to hold small exercise classes, but only if participants say at least 13 feet apart. Uh, I assume what will follow is a new state bureaucracy set up to enforce all of these percentages and distances, occupancy rates. I mean, who can keep track of all this? So you, you would need a staff to keep track of this. And then it, all it takes is, again, some minder, like in, in Sacramento, to put a call in to say, uh, I'm at uh, so-and-so store. They have uh, between five and 100,000 square feet. They've got, but it looks like they've got about 32% occupancy right now, so you better send somebody over to write them a ticket. Lunacy. The flip side of that is this uh, letter I got from a friend of mine who is an elder at his church and refuses to wear a mask. Consider what you hear, the pronouncements from politicians, and not to mention the edicts that have been issued, like the Delaware governor, to this. By the way, this elder at, at this uh, church in question, which shall remain nameless, so shall he, he is an EMT. Listen to his explanation for why he refuses to wear a mask. And you tell me if those politicians prattling on about how they're in the business of saving lives, you tell me if... if that description better fits them or better fits this church elder. He writes, at our last me- uh, session meeting, it was suggested I share the reason why I've chosen not to wear a face mask, the belief that it would be helpful for the other church officers to know. 
I agreed and shared my thoughts on this, but not everyone had a chance to hear them, so I'm sharing them with everyone. There are several areas I could comment on that have caused me concern on the mandated use of face masks normally employed in surgical theaters and emergency medicine for use now by the general population with little or no training or remediation. Among the topics I have considered are the scope of legal authority, the duty of civil obedience and the Christian, science and empirical evidence, inductive analogical reasoning, and finally God's law. Although I have concerns relating to each of the aforementioned areas, it is God's law ultimately that compels me not to wear a face mask. There are four necessary elements that must be fulfilled for the general public to use face masks with, the least, with at least the same efficacy as professional health care providers. One, use appropriate type of face mask. Two, aseptic donning and removal of masks. Three, aseptic, aseptic hand-to-hand, hand-to-face behavior, I should say, meaning forbearance from touching one's face while wearing a mask. And four, hand-washing or sanitizing before and after hand-to-face contact. And he says, look... Anybody who observed people wearing masks or just wearing the completely ineffectual uh, bandana or scarf, nobody is following these protocols. Nobody is coming anywhere. I mean, you know, one one millionth of a percent, maybe. I don't know what the stat is, but you know, overwhelmingly, no one is doing those four things that replicate the sort of protocols for mask wearing uh, in a surgical theater. And so the rest of this is actually worse than ineffective, he writes. I mean, he he argues, and here he writes. What I do see in public is most people auto-contaminating themselves by touching their face an estimated 10 times more than people without masks. They do this because the masks itch and are comfortable. People sweat, their breath condenses, and the condensant runs down their face. They reach up to pinch the mask by their nose and mouth where a concentrated quantity of pathogens would accumulate. They also touch the periphery of the mask to make positional adjustments. Potential pathogenic secretions are surely condensed from exhaled breath and sweat around the periphery of the mask, all of this with poor hand hygiene to boot. My position is that that if a mask is used appropriately, and almost no one is, I add, it may help slow the spread may and slow the spread of COVID-19 and all of the pathogens from the host. If a mask is used inappropriately, it may actually accelerate the spread of COVID-19 and all of the pathogens from the host. We need to keep in mind that COVID-19 is not the only pathogen people carry and share. We love our neighbors and don't want to do anything to increase the risk of infection in our community. Our God requires complete, not partial or selective obedience in how we care for our neighbor. This means making a good faith effort to care for our brother in all things, not just COVID-19. If we, in order to comply with the magistrate's directive, chose to fixate on one and only one way to love and protect our neighbor, our love for our neighbor is not biblical. Partial obedience is disobedience. As for our duty to the magistrate, if we only follow the mass directive in as far as we are comfortable or agree with it, but not fully, Incomplete obedience is disobedience to the civil magistrate. I believe most, including Christians, incompletely follow the mass directive. And of course, he's right. He concludes, the sixth commandment demands that we not only forbear from murder, but that we do everything in our power to prevent harm from coming to our neighbor. This includes disobeying the magistrate if what he requires causes us to put our neighbor at risk or harm. I am compelled by conscience not to wear a mask, as it is foreseeable that the casual use of masks puts my neighbor at greater risk of infection for all infectious pathogens, not just COVID-19. I must obey God over the magistrate in this case. That thoughtful argument, layered as it is, an EMT and a church elder, God's law, the the magistrate's directive, the science. 
it's too bad this guy uh, can't operate uh, in as a, an advisor or the actual decider in more governor's mansions around the country, isn't it? This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, and uh, anybody who knows uh, this show knows that I really enjoy this future view column that uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, puts out every week, uh, getting college students to opine on the salient issues of the day. And, uh, you know, we talk so much about uh, young people uh, in this whole conversation about COVID-19 policy. Why don't we hear from some of them? Well, let's hear from college students about how uh, COVID and uh, campus life as a result of COVID, has impacted education. The question that uh, the Wall Street Journal put to the kids who submitted answer, young people, is remote learning an easy A? And I'm already impressed with the uh, first answer of this from uh, Kevin Peterson at Columbia University, uh, who is an economics major, because he mentioned Alan Bloom and his uh, seminal work, Closing of the American Mind, uh, which was, uh, of course, written well before uh, he was on this planet, uh, the student, that is, and, uh, you know, I thought at most college campuses, we're starting history over, you know, today. So we're not supposed to look back at anything that uh, came before us, particularly something from, you know, part of the white patriarchal structure of oppression. Anyway, his uh, argument, uh, Mr. Peterson's, is that taking the pass-fail grading systems many schools adopted last spring – to, you know, take those, for example. I don't know of any school that continued using such systems when classes resumed in the fall, if they hadn't already been using them before the pandemic. The use of pass-fail at the beginning of the pandemic was justified given the uncertainty of the time and the difficulty some students had accessing academic resources remotely. And while the remote instruction has its faults, at least for kids on campus, even if they're on campus learning from their dorm room. He argues it opened up some possibilities for improving higher ed. Many professors took advantage of remote instruction to invite experts as guest speakers, and the ability to rewatch recorded lectures has surely helped many students gain a better grasp of the course material. Naturally, some students keep their cameras off on Zoom so they can attend class in their pajamas, but students were wearing sweatpants in the classroom long before COVID. <laughs> pajamas virtually, and not just in real genius either. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting perspective, the ability to, to you get uh, experts that are more easily accessible than having to trek somewhere to be in person. And uh, although you certainly had the technology to pipe experts in before, but you get to record their lectures and, and rewatch them time and again until the material sinks in. OK, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that potential improvement just because he mentioned Alan Bloom and closing of the American mind. Uh, a, a student, uh, Brett Bauman, from Wheaton College, international relations and Spanish major, Wheaton College, Illinois, Wheaton College, where, uh, Wheaton, where I grew up, Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, if higher education has been dumbed down, it would certainly be news to millions of college students across the country who have been working diligently to apply themselves under great mental, emotional, and physical strain. Uh, talking about the pass-fail. Uh, yeah, that was implemented in the spring. The fall has had a better, albeit imperfect, idea. 
uh, albeit imperfect idea of uh, students had a better idea, I should say, of what was expected and lenient grading policies were generally scrapped. So at least we get some perspective that the uh, leniency, at least at some of these institutions, was temporary. In terms of uh, academic rigor, professors at my school continue to challenge students to think critically and engage with course materials despite the abnormal circumstances. For those who returned to school in person, as I did, there was an added level of anxiety from being hundreds of miles away from family during this difficult time. And he argues that uh, professors have been very supportive. He uh, concludes, I wouldn't be surprised if many students look back at the, and see this as the most formative year of their education. Okay. All right. Looking on the sunny side of life. Fine. Uh, let's hear from one more. Uh, Nicholas Leon is at Babson College, business major. Uh, some of us, some but not all, I sh- he uh, writes, of my classes have become an easy A, and one attendant in one attendance wasn't only optional, it was unnecessary. I've neither attended in person nor watched a recorded lecture afterward. I devoted a maximum of five hours to it. That includes exams, lectures, and papers. My final grade was an A-. However, he adds, courses like that are rare at my school, which prides itself on being the number one school in the country for entrepreneurship. But the overall quality of my classes has taken a nosedive. Even as an RA working a part-time job and overloading with five courses, I found myself hardly doing anything most days. Whole weeks have gone by where I've hardly broken a sweat. My curriculum before the pandemic was rigorous but manageable. Now it feels though Babson is filling the time with whatever passes as an education until the pandemic is over so they can get back to real classes. Well, that's interesting. And, and it, you know, it, it may speak to resources, too. The different uh, universities and colleges have different bandwidth. That's interesting. And then you have those argue like this uh, Vanderbilt uh, uh, molecular and cellular biology student that actually things should be easier. Standards should be a bit softer because of the times being so hard. So I suppose not unlike the circumstances for people in the real world outside of higher education, it recalls something that uh, Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal several months back that we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This, this, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and we go from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, talking about college students trying to thoughtfully express themselves about uh, uh, the quality of the education they're obtaining during COVID-19 and restaurateurs and restaurant workers, people trying to get back to work, uh, church elders thinking about uh, how to uh, be good Christians in this time of COVID. Now we just go to a Hollywood actor ranting. This is Tom Cruise. Uh, this is classic, and we're going to see if you can help us rank this rant in the pantheon of great rants in the world of sports entertainment. have a few examples, but Tom Cruise uh, filming uh, the latest in the Mission Impossible franchise over there in Mary, o- in- Mary Old England. But it wasn't so merry when Tom Cruise saw two uh, members of the film crew not uh, more than two meters apart. Uh, you know, they're in the metric there, so six feet, two meters apart, and uh, he went off. Now, before you listen to this, I do want to assure you that no couches were harmed in the making of this rant. We are the gold standard. You're back there in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. Because they believe in us and what we're doing. I'm on the phone with every 
studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you <laughs> I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. Done? No, not done. That's it. No apologies. You can tell it to the people that are losing their homes because our industry is shut down. It's not going to put food on their table or pay for their college education. That's what I sleep with every night. In the future of this industry. Still not done. So I'm sorry, I'm beyond your apologies. I have told you, and now I want it. And if you don't do it, you're out. We are not shutting this movie down! Really working himself into a lather. Is it understood? If I see it again, you're gone. And so are you. So you're going to cost him his job. And I see it on the set, you're gone. And you're gone. Yeah. It's getting a bit repetitive. That's it. Am I clear? Do you understand what I want? Do you understand the responsibility that you have? Because I will deal with your reason. And if you can't be reasonable, and I can't deal with your logic, you're fired. That's it. That is it. I trust you guys to be here. Father figure. That's it. Yeah. It's not it, though, is it? It's still not it. All right, that's it. Uh, yeah, uh, somebody get him a copy of uh, LRH's Dianetic Stat, huh? Where's that uh, fun-loving Tom Cruise from Risky Business? I guess he's gone, it being the wingnut holding Hollywood together, as he was suggesting. That's great stuff. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. And uh, as to you know, being able to, uh, for him being able to follow somebody else's logic, I mean, we're supposed to, Take that seriously from somebody who um, believes that his God is Zenu, some uh, imagined uh, galactic dictator created by L. Ron Hubbard. But, but sure, okay, all right. So now where does this fit in the pantheon of great rants? Because that's really all that's relevant in this conversation. There's no reason to try to address something that is substanceless, substanceless on the substance. So you think about another great actor. Why don't we stick in Hollywood for a second? Mainly, this just calls. This just provides an opportunity for us to call back some of our favorite rants because they're entertaining. Christian Bale on the set of Terminator Salvation. Remember this instant classic when somebody uh, walked across the set as he was doing a scene. Take your. F- I want your f- set. You. Now don't just be sorry. Think for one second. What the f- are you doing? Are you professional or not? Yes, I am. Do I walk around and rip that? No, shut Do I want? No. No. Don't shut me up. 
Am I going to walk around and rip <laughs> down in the middle of a scene? Then walking right through. Ah, uh, da 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 da, like this in the background. What the f is it with you? What don't you f understand? You got any f idea about, hey, it's distracting having somebody walking up behind Bryce in the middle of the scene. Give me a answer. What don't you get about it? Oh, good. It's good for you. for you. Yeah, looking oh, at the lights. <laughs> I don't know why. This that one just tickles me. The Christian Bale one, and uh, uh, you know, um, I uh, think that's one of those rants, though. To be to be fair, where you don't have a full appreciation for it until you hear it on cut. Now, of course, we can't do that on this show. But I certainly would encourage you on the YouTube, uh, away from earshot of the kids, to enjoy some of these rants, Tom Cruise, Christian Bale, others, uh, the uncut version. Um, and it's, you know, so again, so that, those are some, you know, two big Hollywood stars. But uh, you've got some other classic ranters, and particularly from the sports world, uh, you know, uh, as a Chicagoan, I immediately think of Coach Ditka. Here's one of many you could choose from. This is my personal favorite. I'm happy for Steve, and I told him I'm proud of him. I tell you what, he's always like a forgotten man. I ah, shut up. What about the black Here, have a quarter and make a phone call. Get your mouth shut. Get your mouth shut, jerk. Dickus. See that? That's your IQ, buddy. Zero. Zero. Hold up, turn over, son. No, I'd rather talk to him. <laughs> Mike, I know, I know I'm smarter than that son. <laughs> you know, it's funny. All these years, I never knew who Ditka was referring to, the, the guy that was heckling him from uh, over the, the assembled sports press corps. And it turns out it was Tom Cruise. Who knew? This is Dan Prof. Show.com. Welcome back to the show and going from uh, Tom Cruise's COVID rant to this PSA from a bunch of Midwestern governors and shame on Eric Holcomb in particular. Governor of Indiana for participating. Take a listen. Hi, everyone. This is Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Governor Andy Bashir. Governor Tim Walz. Governor J.B. Pritzker. Governor Holcomb. Governor Mike DeWine. Governor Tony Evers. Just like we did before Thanksgiving, we wanted to take a moment to urge everyone in our region to do your part to protect our families, frontline workers, and small businesses this holiday season. This may be the most difficult time yet in our struggle with COVID-19 especially with the holidays approaching. Until the vaccine is available to everyone and until we eradicate this virus once and for all, we must continue working to protect one another. The science is settled. The best way we can protect our frontline workers and slow the spread of this virus is to double down on mask wearing, social distancing, and washing our hands frequently. 
Yeah, a couple of things there. It's interesting um, with respect to Pritzker. His phase five reopening plan at the outset was reopening once a vaccine has been developed and is deployed. Well, that's now happening this week, of course, but here we go, moving the goalposts, uh, no longer relevant. He doesn't have a plan for when the reopening Illinois will occur, despite what his own plan said, contemplating a contingency that has now come to pass. Of course not. But Holcomb in particular, the question I would have for him with respect to reading from that script and frankly, in the process, doing the bidding of these ghastly lockdown and bust artists like the Ava Perone of East Lansing, Whitmer and Jelly Belly Pritzker and Evers in Wisconsin, who has only been restrained by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, certainly not by his own impulses. Same question. I don't care if you're a conservative Republican governor of the Hoosier State, a state that is largely open for business because of the culture there that he has to abide, but it's not the leadership that he's provided, I would argue. It's the same question. What is the problem? Since the, the science is settled, the science has never settled, so that statement is in is and of itself a tell. Um, why should we discard the Mount Sinai study on mask wearing, Governor Holcomb? Why should we discard the Danish study on mask wearing, Governor Holcomb? And as my friend, the economist Brian Westbury said, well, wait a second. If mask wearing prevents spread, then why do I need a vaccine? If, if mask wearing is this prophylactic, the way it's been advertised, this force field around me, if I just wear a mask, that everything's going to be all right, which is certainly the implication here, then why bother with a vaccine? I could just wear a, a mask for the rest of my life and be fine. Yeah, the science is not settled. Uh, the science, even though even among some you've heard on this show, promoting mask wearing is flimsy in support of it having a substantial impact on spread, number one. Number two, we've seen this play out in real time. As compliance with mask wearing mandates have gone up, so have cases. Isn't that what we're in the midst of right here during uh, Thanksgiving into the Christmas season? Very disappointing. Uh, Governor Holcomb particularly participating in that charade, that propaganda. And uh, again, it's incumbent upon us to put these questions, just questions, just questions, since you're all knowing, since you've settled the issue in your own mind and you're confident enough to make these unequivocal pronouncements, then address these questions. You should have no problem quickly dispatching them and settling the issue once and for all, shouldn't you? And we'll pick it up there with uh, Harvard professor, Harvard Medical School professor Martin Kaldor at the top of the next hour. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. As we talked about um, the resistance to COVID lockdown policies last hour, most notably in connection with the press conference slash rally that New York restaurateurs and New York restaurant workers had. Uh, I go back to this piece I mentioned in passing yesterday from Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal, where he notes uh, not only that the resistance is not political in nature, at least uh, the thrust of it at present, it is more of the uh, trying to survive nature, like those restaurateurs in New York and everywhere else. Henninger writes, let it also be noted that while the minimally restrictive policies of GOP governors Ron DeSantis in Florida and Christy Noem in South Dakota are familiar, most states, including Kansas under Democratic Governor Laura Kelly, have tried to strike a balance between protecting public health and ensuring economic survival. Uh, right, uh, a balanced approach, yet when a balanced approach is proposed inside the medical community, say in the form of the Great Barrington Declaration, it is uh, met with um, resistance there as well. It's scoffed at in point of fact. 
Will Wilkinson, formerly the Cato Institute, now in the Niskanen Center, writes of this uh, balanced approach that we've talked about with respect to the Great Barrington Declaration and its authors and its signatories. He writes uh, about the balance. The idea that we can protect the vulnerable through a strategy that cheers on soaring rates of infection is dumbfounding. It seems that the only way to protect the elderly, immunocompromised, and otherwise at risk while simultaneously encouraging the spread of infection through the community would be to seal them off from the rest of the population, which simply isn't possible practically or politically. To respond to those criticisms, we're pleased to be joined again by Professor Martin Kaldorf. He is a professor at Harvard University Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also one of the uh, co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Professor Kaldorf, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. So um, how do you respond to criticisms from uh, the likes of Will Wilkinson, others, uh, John Barry at the Tulane School of Public Health, recently uh, writing that, uh, you know, one can keep a child from visiting a grandparent in another city easily enough, but what happens when the child and grandparent live in the same household? How do you protect a 25-year-old diabetic or cancer survivor or a obese person if you're in the same household with somebody that you say should be free to uh, go about their normal life? Well, first of all, the lockdown has utterly failed to protect the elderly. So there has been a, a huge failure of the current lockdown and contact tracing policy. So we know that that did not work. And uh, a big reason is that people were thinking that by sort of reducing the spread in the population, we would automatically protect the elderly, and that's not the case. We have to have very specific uh, protections of the old people. And in terms of, uh, uh, for example, nursing homes, there are nursing homes now that do regular testing of staff and visitors, but that's not uniform in the whole country. So uh, that's a very easy, low-hanging fruit to better, better protect the elderly to do frequent testing of nursing home staff and uh, visitors. And if you want to visit your grandmother and you're positive, then wait a few weeks. So that's a very low-hanging fruit that we could do much, much better at. And uh, some places do it, but uh, not all, all, all places. Yeah, multi-generation homes is, uh, is the most complex uh, issue. And, uh, but the key thing there is to realize is it's not the children who are the threat to the, the grandparents, it's the working age adults. So we know from studies, studies from Stockholm, for example, during the height of the pandemic, that if you're an old person and you live with working age adults, then you are at higher risk than living with other older people. On the other hand, having also children in the household did not further increase the risk. So it's not the children that, in, uh, that do increase risk, but there is uh, a risk from working as adults. And one thing that lockdowns have done is to make it worse because, uh, let's say, college students in their 20s, they are, if you close the colleges and send them home, well, then they're spending time with older parents and older relatives instead of uh, being at college where they would spend time with uh, people their own age who are, are equally low risk of mortality. So the lockdowns in terms of university closing actually makes the problem worse in terms of uh, interracial homes and increases the risk uh, of old people. Well, it is interesting in the Will Wilkinson criticism of the Great Barrington Declaration. He doesn't address whether or not he supports sort of, you know, Wuhan-style lockdowns where you have the government come in and seal you in your home, which is about, you know, what it would take if you want to compare a policy we haven't proposed, uh, that we haven't pursued, to a policy that actually we have pursued in some states uh, rather than comparing it to some utopian idea of what lockdowns will do, despite the fact that they haven't. I, you know, on the one hand, he does this sort of comparing what the Great Barrington Declaration proposes, comparing this sort of balanced approach to some utopian ideal. On the other hand, he dismisses uh, or doesn't address the point that you made that the lockdowns just haven't worked to accomplish what he says 
this perhaps utopian ideal that he won't exactly explain in detail could do. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, the lockdowns that we have now, like school closings, is very tragic because children need to go to school, not just for the education, but also for the physical health and the mental health and the social development. Children are at uh, almost zero risk from COVID, much less than the risk from uh, the annual influenza. And, uh, for example, during the spring, Sweden kept all its schools open uh, from for ages, uh, daycare, uh, school ages 1 to 15. And among 1.8 million children, there was not a single death from COVID-19. And children went, uh, and the teachers, they were no higher risk from uh, compared to other professions. So there's absolutely no public health reasons to keep uh, uh, the schools closed. They should be open five days a week for in-person teaching. Now, uh, the uh, critics of the, the balance approach, the proponents of lockdowns, will point to uh, Sweden's reversal uh, recently to impose more restrictions than they had imposed previously with a spike in cases and a spike in, in the number of deaths in Sweden. Uh, how do you respond to uh, Sweden's at least partial reversal on the approach that they were taking? I think that was a political decision rather than from the public health agencies there. And I think it was unfortunate. Uh, the cases are high, but that's because of more testing. Mortality uh, is less than it was during the spring. And uh, so uh, I think that was a mistake by Sweden to do that. Uh, it, Instead, it, they should have yeah. spent more, more efforts to protect the older people, which uh, they are doing better now than in the spring, but they are still not doing a good enough job protecting the elderly. They're not doing enough testing, for example, around nursing homes. And, and and just, you know, I mean, for, for perhaps uh, uh, resetting the table here now that we're 10 months in or so, uh, in nine months into this, what, what is it that the Great Barrington Declaration proposes to do? Because you recently had a restatement of it, sort of recommitting to the balanced approach as the states were renewing lockdowns. And in point of fact, I mean, some of the mo- most draconian lockdown policies we've seen, even lockdowns that are more strict than they were at the out- uh, outset of the outbreak in the spring. Yeah, so the underlying uh, 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 fact behind the declaration is that while anybody can get infected, young or old, there is more than a thousandfold difference in the risk of mortality from COVID if you're old versus young. Uh, and that's an enormous difference that we typically don't see for most uh, diseases uh, uh, or for most infectious diseases. So uh, the idea is that we do need to do a better job protecting those older and other high-risk groups that are at high risk, for which this is more serious than annual influenza, uh, especially people over 70, but also people in the 60s uh, um, are at somewhat higher risk. So, for example, in the schools, we should let teachers about 60, they should be allowed to work from home, either doing uh, online teaching or helping other teachers with creating creating homework or or essays or exams, while the schools are open for all the the children and students and uh, for uh, with uh, uh, teachers under the age of 60 working in person. Um, So... uh, the idea is to better protect old people at the same time as children should go to school and young adults should be able to live their lives uh, uh, normally. They sh- should still wash their hands and stay home when sick and doing those basic uh, uh, preventive measures. But uh, they are not at, uh, at uh, higher risk of mortality from this. So they are much more higher risk from all the collateral damage that's being caused by this, uh, these lockdowns. And just one example if we look at the age group between 25 and 44, and we look at the deaths uh, this year up until October, uh, we see that about 4% of the deaths 
in this age group would be COVID-19. But the excess mortality, according to a new recent CDC report, uh, was 26% uh, in this age group. So there's enormous excess mortality, but very little of this is due to COVID. Most of it is due to other aspects, uh, due to the lockdowns and the, uh, and the fear that is spread in society because people don't get their uh, uh, their, uh, their preventive treatments, for example, or the worst cardiovascular disease outcomes and the mental health conditions are worse. So for this age group, the collateral damage from these lockdowns and the fear that's been spread is much, much bigger than the risk from COVID-19. So uh, we need to get society back operating normally uh, for, 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 for children and young adults. When we come back with Professor Martin Kaldorf, I want to uh, explore um, the development of the vaccine, uh, the vaccines that have now been approved, Pfizer with Moderna coming online, it it looks shortly as well, and whether that could have been done differently and even more quickly than it was done, even as, uh, uh, as unprecedented as it was, the speed at which it was done. More with Professor Martin Kaldorf, professor at Harvard University Medical School, right after this. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Martin Kaldorf. He's a professor at Harvard University Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which we were discussing before the break. Uh, Professor Kaldorf, I want to get your reaction to something that uh, Holman Jenkins wrote about the vaccine in the Wall Street Journal. He uh, made the point the design for Moderna's vaccine was completed on January 13th two days after the Chinese released the genetic makeup of the new virus before even the Wuhan lockdown. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech whittled 20 slightly different designs down to two between January and July. They might have done so sooner, writes Jenkins, if not anticipating the drawn-out three-phase clinical trials that still lay ahead. Uh, And he goes on to say, the public talk from the start focused on the risk to public confidence, of shortcuts or deviation or the appearance of shortcuts or deviation from standard development protocols. But to repeat, a finished vaccine design was on hand by late January. Um, Our standard approach ended up being successful beyond early hopes, no question. President Trump was ridiculed for suggesting we could have a vaccine by the end of the year. That has come to pass. But he uh, goes on to argue that a clinical look back won't automatically conclude it was the best approach under the circumstances. Perhaps uh, the most widely applicable lesson uh, remains when the virus manifests itself with unmeetable demand on local health care, the constraints on political action tend to disappear. And he argues this really holds regardless of political system. Perhaps accepting more vaccine risk earlier might well have been the right way to overall minimize the costs and pains inflicted on the public in the political crisis brought on by this new coronavirus. In point of fact, he mentioned some of the arguments that were made earlier on, the challenge trials, um, the suggestion that a lower than 95% projected efficacy rate could have been a risk worth taking in certain circumstances. I mean, compare that to the uh, established efficacy rate of the flu vaccine and so forth. 
Uh, does Jenkins have a point that uh, uh, that it's Monday morning quarterback, it's 2020, but you want to try and learn lessons, that a little less risk aversion on the vaccine development side, and not to mention a little less bureaucracy, but that those are sort of associated, could have meant um, a, an effective vaccine earlier on, could have saved lives, could have reduced some of the collateral damage from the approach that we actually took. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, maybe it could have gone a little bit faster, but uh, it takes time to develop a vaccine, and I think it's important to test it in a phase three clinical trial before it's in general use, uh, both to ensure or to find out what the true efficacy is and to find out uh, any uh, common adverse reactions, if there are any. So I think that process is actually very critical to do before in general use and doing it, a phase three clinical trial takes time because you can't just give them the vaccine and then see uh, follow up for a week you have to follow them for several months to see uh, if the vaccine uh, is effective and any adverse reactions and there are still many things we don't know about these vaccines right now so we will have to continue monitoring these vaccines both as part of the trials, as well as in the general population. And we're doing that with uh, a weekly safety surveillance, for example. Uh, it is interesting to note, though, I mean, given the political mantra of anything to save one life, well, not anything, it turns out, huh? I mean, so you could have been less risk-averse on the vaccine development side, as Holman Jenkins said, and it may have worked out differently. That's sort of the... The opportunity cost, we don't know. Uh, we don't know how high that opportunity cost was. But uh, it's, we, we also had no idea what the, how high the opportunity cost would be of locking down, but we decided to do that. It, so it's just interesting how the, you know, the, 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 the politics uh, of this goes, where uh, you're, it's okay to be willy-nilly in the direction of the government coming down it is not okay to be willy-nilly in the direction of the government withdrawing and allowing, in this case, the private sector to proceed at its pace rather than the pace that includes that sort of government oversight, those sort of uh, re regulations that are already in practice. It's just sort of interesting how we're of two minds on risk. Yeah, and I mean, the vaccine development is sort of done based on long, long established uh uh, procedures, except much faster this time. On the other hand, lockdowns, that's a new thing. Nobody had thought about lockdowns before 2020. Uh, if you go and look at the uh, pandemic preparedness plans that most Western countries have prepared, they didn't say anything about lockdowns. Uh, they said protect the high-risk uh, people. So this lockdown was a new experiment, and I don't even know where it came from because nobody had proposed this ahead of time. And there's no public health reason to do this. Uh, and people were just thinking about COVID-19, which goes against the fundamental principle of public health, which is you cannot look only at one disease. COVID-19, you have to look at health in general, more broadly, including cardiovascular disease uh, that has been deteriorating with worse outcomes because of the lockdown. We don't have these, uh, we have less cancers uh, being diagnosed. That's not because there's less cancer, just because they're not being diagnosed and then people aren't getting the treatment they need. So we're going to see uh, more cancer deaths in, in the several years to come now because of the lockdowns. Even if we end the lockdowns today, we will see more cancer deaths in the years to come. Uh, isn't, isn't, the, 
Yeah, I, I mean, and I, 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 the mental health I know we've talked a, a, a good bit about, but isn't there something to proportionality as well? I mean, is is banning all dining, indoor and outdoor, in California, an appropriate response to a a a, a, a understood transmission incidence uh, uh, in restaurants of less than two percent? Is that a proportional mm-hmm. response? It's not uh, a proper response, and it's not based on, on good public health science. Uh, it's if if you're 73 years old, then no, you should not go to that restaurant. But if you're 23 or 33, um, you have very low risk. So there's no reason to do all these closings, and it actually makes things worse because the longer by dragging out the pandemic as we have done, it's made it much more difficult to protect the older, high-risk people. Because they cannot isolate themselves forever, they will not do that because that's inhuman. Right. So by dragging it out uh, for too long, we've actually uh, uh, made it more difficult to protect the old. Well, and the other thing that that these lockdowners uh, they would respond will say, well, you know, the 25 year old goes to a restaurant, he gets infected, then he comes home and he infects 75 year old grandpa. Well, you know. Um, it's it, it's sort of presumptuous. Well, it's not sort of. It is presumptuous in sort of the most offensive way, which is to say, "Oh, I see." So uh, you, government, and your cookie cutter policy, you are more interested and better positioned for me to protect my grandfather than I am in my household, right? I mean, that's the premise that you're essentially starting from. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. Um... If you, I mean, if you're 25 years old and you you live with your grandfather, then yeah, you should be more careful. Um, and also, if you work, if you're 25 year old and work for nothing home, then you should be tested before you go back to work. And there are tests that can be done uh, uh, the same morning as people start working. So those should be utilized. But we're not used, utilizing that in all nursing homes. Professor Martin Kaldorf, professor at Harvard University Medical School. Professor, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you, and great talking to you. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, the Biden administration uh, is uh, Biden transition team is uh, busy assembling cabinet nominees as well as um, uh, policy agenda. And uh, it's interesting how much uh, emphasis there is on climate related policy, of course, having to satisfy the chicken littles on the left when it comes to you know, the religion of environmentalism and Mother Gaia as their god. And so we see not just a czar, John Kerry, in the area of climate policy, but bringing back Obama's EPA administrator, Gina McCarthy, to be a climate advisor. We're here talk of ARPA-C, meaning Advanced Research Projects, specifically in the direction of combating the existential threat that, that the left says uh, climate change presents to the United States and the Western world, well, really the entire world. 
Uh, what if uh, that is not how the story of humanity could end? Uh, what if it's uh, simpler than that and, frankly, uh, much more within our ability to control through the personal choices that we make, uh, particularly those surrounding family? Well, that's sort of the argument that's been advanced. Not sort of. It is the argument that's been advanced by Glenn Stanton, who's the director of Global Family Formation Studies at Focus on the Family, author of The Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. And uh, he joins us now to discuss that. Glenn, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, this uh, piece that you wrote for Quillette.com uh, with apologies to REM, the end of the world as we know it, question mark. It's not the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, question mark. It doesn't have to be. And you suggest that uh, rather than uh, the neo-Malthusian arguments uh, advanced by the left, despite uh, Malthus and all of his acolytes over the centuries being, uh, or the, the last hundred years being debunked, that it's um, it's family, it's uh, population growth, it's the reproduction rate that we should be focused upon. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, this is an article that I wrote. Uh, I, I spent like the whole summer researching it, looking into this topic of you know, and what struck me was, and I kind of start out the article, is in New York City, uh, there is a big old kind of clock. It's called the climate clock, and they have it counting down to about seven years from now when we hit this inevitable, irreversible turn toward destruction because of climate change. AOC and, must have set um, that clock. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know, so I started researching this topic and like, what does the data actually say about how healthy the world is in terms of the air we breathe, the water we breathe, the um, natural disaster, people who die, literally who die from natural disasters every year. And I was shocked to find out that, I mean, the absolute best data, and this comes from the Martin Oxford School from Oxford University, they track these kinds of things. You can find it on the internet that all these things are improving and improving dramatically. In fact, humanity is thriving better than it has in any time in modernity. Um, so, I mean, stunning. It's just the absolute opposite that the scaremongers, the eco-scaremongers warn us about. And they oh. say they do it based on science. It's, you know, I mean, you can find scientific, quote, scientific facts here and there, but when you put the whole story together, the story is really quite different than what they say it is. Well, right. I mean, and this is what, um, uh, I mean, those with uh, environmental bona fides like uh, Michael Schellenberger uh, who writes for Forbes, have uh, written about extensively uh, this uh, a recent book by Schellenberger on the topic. And so so, so we've talked a lot about um, that over time, trying to address the hysterical chicken little arguments uh, of the left, the, uh, the apocalyptic uh, pronouncements about uh, the climate that have all proved wrong, as well as their neo-Malthusian arguments about overpopulation that have all proved wrong. Something that, that, that conservatives have talked a bit about but uh, maybe not with the urgency that is required is the uh, nature of the family and, and not just the intact family, but the size of that intact family. And that's where our, and, that, and that's where I want to pick it up when we come back. Uh, you know, Ross Dothat posed this question in a recent piece. You know, how different would the world look if the 
if, if, if uh, couples were having uh, 2.5 children per family rather than 1.7, uh, he has his perspective. I want to get yours when we come back. Len Stanton, Director of Global Family Formation Studies at Focus on the Family, author of The Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. We'll be right back with more. It's the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Glenn Stanton. He's the director of Global Family Formation Studies at Focus on the Family. He's also the author of The Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. And uh, Glenn, per your piece in Quillette, uh, maybe you're well positioned because of your research for that piece to answer Ross Dothat's question, uh, and that is, how different would America look if our replacement rate, the number of kids per family, was not 1.7 on average, but 2.5? Well, I have to tell you, and I have to commend you, you know your stuff. <laughs> that article that he wrote is a good one. And, you know, essentially he's just asking the question, what if everybody had just one more child? Um, and people hear that kind of stuff, and they think, gosh, are you insane? Overpopulation. But no, he's exactly right that there is research that came out this summer that was funded by the Gates Foundation looking at demography, just population growth. And the U.N. has long known that we are well below replacement level in population, that we're not reproducing ourselves. And Actually, this Gates Foundation research found out, I mean, stunning that the decline in population, I mean, our population is growing now, but it's not growing enough to replace itself, and that that will exponentially continue, if you will, in a negative growth direction, if, if, if you can understand that. But what they found out was at about the end of this century, twenty-one in the year 2100, there will be about one five-year-old on the earth for every 80-year-old. And, I mean, that is – that's what the end of the world looks like. Mm. You know, you cannot sustain humanity with that kind of, of negative fertility. And in the article, I remind people, think about your business, you know, like in – Say in 25 years, your business, you'll only have one five-year-old for every old person. You cannot grow a business. You cannot maintain a population. You cannot maintain humanity with those kinds of numbers. And it's the, it's the old axiom. Here. It's the old axiom that if you're not growing, you're dying. And that includes with human beings, not just as a business or or a country, and, and and we have a, a real world. Ex- I mean, many real world examples of this in the West now, but perhaps, uh, uh, but but perhaps in the the East, it's more most pronounced in Japan, where, as Mark Stein observed uh, some years ago, now uh, Japan would have been better to invent the walker rather than the walkman, because of the the aging of that population that has them in a demo- demographic death spiral. You know what they are. I mean, in, in a sense, these and these other demographers, and these are just secular scientists saying. Japan is is essentially done for. You know, they have already started their inexorable, inevitable decline. 
The others say that China is moving in that direction, and there's two demographers from Canada. They wrote a book called The Empty Planet, which is a phenomenal book. They say that, yes, China is situated to be the world economic leader, but they're not going to be simple. They're not having enough babies. They're not creating tomorrow's Chinese. And so that's going to knock them out of contention, and they say that the United States will, be, will continue to be the world economic leader, one, because our fertility rate is still below replacement, but we're replacing that with immigration, and, right. and wise immigration policy is really what matters. But it goes back to, Dan, what you were saying. It all comes down to mommies and daddies getting together creating the new human beings and that is the need of the day that is what is going to do in humanity is moms and dads forgetting to have those kids well so here so here's the the other question there's some uh, disagreement uh, about this what the answer is on the one hand you have uh, ross dothak going back to his piece arguing essentially that um families uh, especially those uh, bigger families are not having as many kids as they actually want to have for a variety of reasons. Whereas others, like um, poli sci professor uh, Scott Yenor over at uh, Boise State University, suggest, well, I, you know, the research is a little bit uh, unclear on that, whether or not that's actually true, that generally speaking, there's just a desire to have less kids among those of childbearing age, you know, couples are getting married later in life and there's just less focus on uh, child rearing. Uh, so it seems to me the answer to the question of, you know, is there a real desire and we can remove some of the 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 uh, disincentives to fulfill that desire or is there no desire and we have to reanimate that desire? It seems like the answer to that question is important. Yeah, well, it really is, and, it, and it's a fascinating question that, that Ross brings up is women, you know, because I always hear this, and, and you know this very well, Dan, like, oh, well, you're just saying women should just have all these babies. Ross is saying, and others are saying, women want to have these babies. They, that, you know, they're mothers. They, they want to have children, and Ross is saying if women just had the babies that they desired, but because of economic issues and energy issues and things like that, they don't. But that's the thing. If we created a world that was pronatalist, if you will, that said, no, babies are a good thing and let's try, you know, if it became a feminist idea, if you will, as crazy as that sounds to say, you know what, more kids are better. Women rock the world because they create new human beings. And if women had the backing to be mothers and to give birth, that would be a great thing. And you're right. I mean, the, the Boise State scholar, he kind of questions that, but he's questioning what it breaks down to is desire. And sometimes like yesterday, we desired this tomorrow, we desire something else. But I think Ross is exactly right that women generally and the data, just not only just the data that Ross quotes, but there is data across the board over the last 30, 40, 50 years that women do generally desire to have more kids than they're able to have because of financial and family issues and things like that. So we need to, just like we are being called to change our policy on the climate, we've got to change our policy on the family and toward life and understanding. And this is my main point in the article, that people are good. People make the world a better place in terms of they're not just consumers, like Malthus told us, 
they are idea people. They are problem solvers. They're innovators. And that we are healthier, happier, more creative, more productive today with more people than humanity has ever been. And this data shows Malthus exactly, precisely wrong. Glenn Stanton, Director of Global Family Formation Studies at the Focus on the Family, author of The Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. Glenn Stanton, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, you bet. Thank you. It's hard to align my good intentions My head's full of things that I can't mention Seems I usually get these out there the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, just in case you didn't think that we were living in a Shakespearean comedy, I give you this from uh, page six in uh, your post. Ready? Mm-hmm. You sure? Uh, while uh, the DOJ probes Hunter Biden's work with Ukrainian energy company Burisma, and that's not the limit of it, but I don't expect you know much from the page six columnist. President-elect Joe Biden's son is focusing on his first solo art show. Yeah. Sources tell page six Hunter has inked a deal to be an artist represented by a gallery in New York. An announcement and an exhibition of his work is being planned for next year. Can you imagine what his work, the nature of his work, his artwork, Hunter Biden's? Hmm. Well, you don't have to because they tell you. Uh, where is Hunter Biden an artiste in addition to leveraging his dad's stature to line his pockets? Making blown ink abstractions on paper. Yeah. Apparently, uh, this uh, avocation has helped him battle addiction and cope with media attention. Blown ink. Gosh, I don't know if... The word blow and Hunter Biden should be used in the same sentence, at least not if you want to to cover Hunter Biden positively. He told The New York Times in February that painting or blown ink abstractions, as it were, not exactly uh, Rembrandt here uh, or even Jackson Pollock, is literally keeping me sane. For years, I wouldn't call myself an artist. Now I feel comfortable saying it. Well, you really shouldn't. And I say that not having seen his work, so perhaps I'm being a bit intemperate. I I should give him a chance and take a look at his blown ink abstractions. Mm. I wonder how much the Chinese would pay for Hunter Biden's artwork. A painting, he says, Hunter Biden, puts my energy towards something positive. It keeps me away from people and places where I shouldn't be. Well, by all means, if it keeps you away from doing the bidding of uh, America's enemies, then, you know, make all the blown ink abstractions that you can. Working from a studio in a pool house in the Hollywood Hills, Hunter uses a metal straw to blow alcohol ink onto Japanese Yupo paper. Wonder what that metal straw was used for previously. Uh, 
you know, I, I just can't help uh, every time I see Hunter Biden, particularly when Hunter Biden speaketh or there's news about Hunter Biden in recalling uh, Rodney Dangerfield as Al Cervic from Caddyshack. Ooh, hey, nice kid. Now I know why tigers eat their young. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parler. It doesn't seem like anybody with uh, oversight enforcement capacity pays much attention to these inspector general reports uh, about uh, uh, abrogation of duty, malfeasance, or contracting, the area of contracting as well. So as much as we've uh, focused, rightly so, on the conduct of the Federal Bureau of Investigations when it comes to their actual formal role of criminal investigations, the politicization of the upper echelons of the FBI under Jim Comey, and frankly, I think you could argue since, at least absent any significant reckoning within that agency for what we know per these Inspector General reports happened, um, now we have another layer, and that comes with uh, your typical graft, allegedly the sorts of things that you expect from government, generally speaking, also happen to apparently be taking place within the FBI, as if uh, you know their formal law enforcement duty problems weren't enough. Uh, now we have this uh, piece by Adam Mill over at uh, amgreatness.com about uh, the sort of uh, pay-to-play politics you would expect in, uh, in Chicago. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to thefederalist.com, amgreatness.com, The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for all that you guys do. So tell us about Tuva, the company, this company named Tuva, and uh, how it works as a vendor to the FBI. And uh, make the case, as you did in your piece in amgreatness.com, that maybe we should just turn these agencies formally over to mobsters because at least it would be more honest and a more honest presentation to the American people. Yeah, I actually I got interested in this idea because I, I used to be a Sopranos fan. I watched The Sopranos, and it always fascinated me how Tony Soprano would make his money, but you know try to avoid getting caught. And one of his schemes was that he would consult with these waste management companies. In fact, there was this really cool episode when he was told by his lawyer, hey, you need to actually start showing up to these companies if you're going to collect consulting fees because because people are starting to get wise to the fact that you're you're getting paid fees, but you're not working, you're not consulting, you're not even showing up to the office. Of course, when he shows up, he finds that his office has been used for storage for years because he you know, hasn't seen the inside of that office in, in years. And so in the government, they've tried to implement all these rules so that if an agency does hire a consulting firm or they hire someone to uh, for a services contract and there's not going to be a building or a bridge or you know something you can look at afterwards it's just going to be 
oh yeah, he gave me advice and, and you know, they're paid on an hourly basis, then there, there needs to be some kind of tangible proof that you don't have a Tony Soprano situation. So that's what uh, this inspector general looked into. His name is Horowitz. And, and I'll tell you, this guy seems to be the only thing standing between Department of Justice going completely to the walls because it's the only thing that Department of Justice and the FBI seem to fear is this inspector general who can actually publish a public report and embarrass the FBI if they're still capable of being embarrassed. So he looked into this contract. It was this huge, gargantuan, $60 million contract for basically consulting and personal services to this company that was supposedly owned by an Alaskan native. You know, it was a, they invoked this program that's supposed to help historically disadvantaged business, groups. right? Right, like like Alaskan natives and and uh, you know African Americans and that sort of thing. And uh, sure. what, so get an Inuit Eskimo with- as a frontman for you know a bunch of retired FBI agents to make money, right? That's the inference I'm drawing from that report. That's exactly that's exactly right. So what the uh, there's a, this regulation called the Federal Acquisition Regulation, and it specifically tries to prevent a Tony Soprano kind of situation by forcing the government to work through a contracting officer, a contracting officer's representative, and then they're supposed to verify that before the money goes out the door that these companies are actually performing work. But in this case, the FBI did a little neat trick. What they did is they made the the work that was supposedly being done classified, but they didn't get a classified rating to the contracting officer or the representatives. So they would get these invoices and then basically they'd be looking at a, a sheet that didn't say anything about what these people supposedly did and they would just pay them. So that's been going on for four years and they have claimed close to $48 million, perhaps even more, for just what appears to be a few dozen people working. And just as you said, Dan, uh, a lot of these people are retired law enforcement. Now, the OIG didn't specifically say they were retired FBI, but they were hired based upon their supposed experience. A lot of these people are recent retirees. Some of them have just, had just retired within a year or so. To do what? Well, that, that's exactly it. I mean, what, what, what is it that they're supposed to do? And Horowitz, what he found was that the scope of works for these task orders that would get issued would be so vague that you couldn't really verify. It was, you know, a Tony Soprano kind of situation. You couldn't really verify that they were doing any work at all. What we have here is a contract that, like looking from the outside in, it really looks like a Tony Soprano consulting arrangement, a sweetheart deal for people who used to work for the FBI, used to work for federal law enforcement. They go get retired, they get out, they sign on with this company, and then apparently they're not kept busy enough by this supposed work they're doing. So they all, they all have, a bunch of them have second jobs. They're all moonlighting for different organizations. They're supposed to have reported that to the FBI. Many of them didn't. They're flying to other yeah. countries. They're supposed yeah, to be so, reporting uh, that to the FBI. You know, uh, it, uh, this sort of federal graph, somebody should investigate that. Maybe, I don't know, what, is there an agency that would investigate this sort of federal graft? I, I, I don't know. Well, Do you know that's exactly, I mean, I think, Dan, that's, that's a great point. And the thing is, is that the, the, the position of the Department of Justice and, you know, the FBI is actually a subordinate division of the, of the DOJ, allows them to block and protect investigations into their own people. They can take care of their own. And you can go back and read these OIG reports. You've got members of the DOJ taking money from their the confidential informants. You've got them cheating on their taxes. You've got them, uh, you know, download. There was just a report that came out Monday about a U.S. Uh, an attorney for a U.S. attorney's office was keeping a cache of porn for easy access at his office, uh, you know, and using using his government computer. 
And almost always, these, these individuals are allowed to resign anonymously if anything happens to them at all. Very frequently, nothing happens to them. And then there's no prosecution. Prosecution is almost always declined if the person committing the crime either worked for the FBI or the Department of Justice. Maybe they can be get I, a, I they, they could get a job as a TA with Peter Strzok over at Georgetown. Right. And I mean, you know, we have to be, we have to be so grateful for, uh, uh, for the, the, the OIG. Peter Strzok, the, the, those emails came to light. We learned uh, Peter Strzok's name from the department, from the OIG uh, department. We would never know because because the FBI and DOJ just completely ignore requests from Congress for information. They uh, you know routinely invoke all of these uh, ongoing investigation privileges if there's a Freedom of Information Act request or uh, if they're sued. Uh, they just seem to be completely above any kind of accountability. They say, oh, well, we are accountable to the Constitution. We're not accountable to the president or Congress. But then they don't follow the Constitution at all. They violate FISA. They violate uh, court orders regarding how to uh, surveil Americans. They blow off the president when the president says you need to produce documents. And then they, of course, you know, thumb their noses at Congress when uh, Congress asks for documents. But this Horowitz seems to have the magic bell to, to try and get information out of them. I, I would be very concerned if uh, there's a move to dislodge him with the incoming Biden administration, because if he goes and they change the culture there, and we have what we have over in the intelligence community where almost nothing ever comes out of their inspector general, then it's just Katie bar the door. I mean, these contracts and these corrupt activities, there's going to be nobody exposing it. Well, I, look, I, I, I mean, this is it's good to be documented, but I should both the inspector general and then people like you writing about it. But um, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised when you're when you're you're not held to account other than by your own standards that can shift as your interests shift, then the sort of abuse we saw from Jim Comey, and Andy McCabe, and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, this is just a different form of that abuse. If I'm on a, if there's no accountability, I might as well enrich myself while I'm sort of prosecuting my political agenda through my official responsibilities as well, right? I mean, this is the whole problem with the lack of accountability in the federal government as well, writ large, and the and that accountability taking the form of a reckoning for bad actors and discernible bad acts. This doesn't come, so I might as well, you know, behave like some Chicagoland school superintendent where I retire and then I immediately get a contract for as much as I was making as a, a full-time employee, so I get it on both ends. Yeah, and I think that you're making an excellent point. It's it's not that the, the FBI and DOJ has bad apples. It's that nothing happens to the bad apples, and that these bad apples are you know very in very senior positions, and they're setting examples for the rest of the organization. So when you see a side hustle like this this Tuva consulting contract that doesn't you know it doesn't have any accountability, you have to ask yourself: Does this help us understand why the FBI doesn't seem curious at all about about some of these other side hustles that are problematic? You know, side hustles with right. consulting with Ukrainian you, firms and side right. hustles with uh, nonprofit uh, organizations that somehow manage to be able to book appointments with the Secretary of State when uh, when you make your donation. You protect my inside deal. I protect your inside deal. We all get rich and then uh, we retire to uh, you know some place where we don't have to deal with the hoi polloi. Perfect. Isn't that the real yes. reason why he got impeached? Is that he Maybe. messed with the side hustle? Yeah. Great question. Adam Mill, attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist, amgreatness.com, where you can check out his piece that we were discussing. I'll tweet it out as well. And the Daily Caller. Adam Mill, thanks for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Thank you so much. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft 
and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danprofshow, including Parlor. This is not getting nearly the play that it deserves, which is uh, why this show exists, to ensure these things are not missed. Everybody focusing on dissecting Biden's post-electoral college vote speech, and then Mitch McConnell, the Senate floor, yesterday congratulating the president-elect Joe Biden and the vice president-elect Kamala Harris. And we're supposed to get into a, a, a big to-do about uh, the terminology rather than just let the dates play out as the dates are set, as they are playing out. The Zoom call this week, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris on the call as well, and uh, these self-styled black civil rights leaders, which are just black race identity hustlers with titles that uh, put Joe Biden up. Left-wing black activists, you know, like the good Reverend Raphael Warnock down in Georgia, the pro-choice reverend, the reverend who compares Republicans who vote for tax cuts to King Herod murdering children to get to Christ. Real, truly. But this call is remarkable because of Joe Biden trying to out-race hustle the race hustlers who put him up and getting a little testy that he would be questioned by these individuals. If you're black and you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black, remember? And if you're black and you question Joe Biden, then you ain't black. Then, well, in Joe Biden's words, the hell with y'all. But it's like when I named it, well, I don't know if that counts. I'm not so sure. Well, if it doesn't count for y'all, well, the hell with y'all. I love the uh, Delaware colloquialism, too. <laughs> if it doesn't work for y'all, then, then the hell with y'all. This is uh, like Hillary Clinton at the Edmund Pettus Bridge channeling James Cleveland. I ain't no ways tired. That's not patronizing, though. Joe Biden doesn't have time for the NAACP's Derek Johnson. We have an opportunity here. We want to make sure we seize upon this opportunity and allowing for the input necessary. Ten more appointments to go. A lot of people in our community are getting a little anxious because they are not seeing enough of the progress they thought they would have seen at this point. Let's not disappoint them, and let's not get to a place where voters in Georgia begin to second guess. Okay, let me respond. I've got to go. Let's get something straight. You shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. NAACP General Counsel Sherilyn Eiffel is up next. Sherilyn Eiffel is dutiful, and she's playing her part. She was on with Rachel Maddow last week. We played it agreeing with Rachel Maddow that Trump campaign officials should be put in prison. She's an officer of the court for daring to challenge the election in a legal way through courts of law. But, but OK, but she's on board with the whole program. But, you know, they want more, too. And he's not taking it from Cheryl and I feel either. Extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years as a United States senator before Sherilyn, you were even involved. What have you done for me lately, Cheryl and I? For while I'm out there busting my hum for black Americans, right? You know who Joe Biden is? He'll tell you who he is. You've never seen me shy away. In the middle of the debate, I called him a racist. In the middle of the debate with him, I took on white supremacists. I'm the guy that took on every single time somebody was threatened in this country. The only white boy you know who did it every single time. So look, all I'm saying here is, guys... And ladies, we're on the same exact page, the same exact page. The only white boy who had the courage to, to call Trump a racist. 
everyone on the left has called him a racist. Everyone on the left who was running for president would have been happy to be in your position and call him a racist on stage, too, however illegitimately, just as you did. I got to say, these are wildly entertaining exchanges for me because there's no white hat in this story. It's not like, oh, oh, how dare he do this? No, 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 no. And Joe Biden isn't standing up to identitarianism either. Don't fall for that. This is a race hustler and Joe Biden telling the race hustlers who put him up, mind your manners. There's nothing redeeming from either side in those exchanges. But it's just so delicious. I mean, this is the snake eating the tail of identitarian politics because, yes, that snake, meaning Joe Biden, has so many mouths to feed, so many tails to eat. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Rabbi Shmuel Klatskin. Rabbi, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, Well, you don't have to adopt my view on that, but I wanted to get your uh, reaction to those exchanges between Joe Biden and some of the the heads of the NAACP and other allies of uh, Joe Biden and the left. Well, uh, cringeworthy, but I've found Biden has delivered on cringeworthy statements consistently for many, many years. I remember first paying attention to him at the at the Bork hearings, and uh, but I, I was recently reviewing the way that he handled uh, Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, when he was before Biden on the Foreign Affairs Committee back in the early 80s, and plenty of cringeworthy stuff back then too. So it's 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 a great theme in the gentleman from Delaware's uh, political career. Well, and you've uh, written recently about the idolatry of identity politics. And, I mean, it seems to me that this is a a wonderful real-world case study in exactly that. I mean, both sides hold identity politics, identitarianism up as their idols, and they're just arguing about who's doing more to advance it. Well, idolatry is appropriate because, I mean, the human identity is set up by Genesis to be a sacred thing. But what's at the core of, of the human being, as, as Genesis 1 puts it, is the divine image. And this way that people who are after power try to get at the deepest things and make them controllable, make them viable and sellable, make them to be tokens for power, is perverting deepest things that, that, that we have in, in, in who we are. So idolatry is correct. It's, it's, it's not just idolatry and worshiping another god, but it's in perverting that divine image that's the core of who each and every human being is into something that is far less than what it is. It's a, it's a terrible, it's a deep sin, and, and uh, there are consequences to, to messing with it. Let, let, I just another real example to make this concrete for people. This uh, from the Claremont uh, United Methodist Church that's uh, gets a pub every year around the time of Hanukkah and Christmas because they do these nativity scenes where they make political statements. This year, it's a whole Black Lives Matter nativity scene. Just the intellectual gymnastics you have to do to make identitarian politics make sense, where one aphorism runs into the other and there's no actual thinking going on. The uh, person who created the display this year is a gentleman named Gennaro Cordova, who's the church's groundkeeper. This is in Claremont, California. And he said that uh, he understands that uh, some people might be put off by Black Lives Matter, but he hopes it prompts discussion about how people can better understand the issue. Quoting him, some people comment to me, why just black people matter? And I say, of course, everyone matters. But at this time, we just want to say that black Americans matter. We need to be united and not see only our differences first. So by focusing on race, we're uniting and not seeing our differences first. 
it's it, the gymnastics, as you put it, can be amazing. It's a real uh, yoga position that one can get into uh, over it. The point is, of course, that there can be a real germ and kernel of truth inside all of these things. People have something to speak about, but when you get it into the hands of people who are willing to distort it and put it outside of what it truly can mean for all of us and use it as a, as, as a, as a tool to bring more power in, in their way, then we, we lose the ability to have a real discussion anymore. He is Rabbi Shemel Klatskin, Associate Rabbi of the Chabad of Greater Dayton, Ohio, and Adjunct Pref- Professor at Antioch University and Senior Editor of Curriculum at JLI. Rabbi Klatskin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. A great pleasure, all. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We talked about uh, the next topic a bit yesterday with Father John Belmonte, he of the, uh, the superintendent of the diocesan schools in Venice, Florida, by way of being the superintendent of the diocesan schools in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, I was a resident of the Joliet diocese uh, once upon a time when I grew up in the western, as I grew up in the western suburbs before I moved to Chicago to my ever-loving chagrin, at least at present. Uh, and uh, it was interesting, our conversation about modeling success and what uh, K-12 schools in the Venice, Florida school district are doing and uh, private schools and some public schools, thanks to Governor DeSantis's mandate that they be open for in-class instruction, are doing in, in a you know relatively free state like Florida versus some of the lockdown states that uh, continue to pretend there's really uh, much controversy about in-person instruction for kids with respect to some of the concerns raised by the teachers' unions who are intent on conditioning their work in new and exciting ways during COVID. So it was that the comparison, since the, he has that perspective, Father Belmonte of Florida versus Illinois, of the uh, private school, Catholic school in his case, uh, settings versus the government school settings, was really instructive. And uh, look, this is against the backdrop of the pers- prospect of a changeover administration and uh, an administration that's very hostile to the sort of innovation that we have seen going on in many states that operate many different school choice programs. And the promotion of that sort of innovation at the K through 12 level by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and President Trump. In point of fact, a political story yesterday, DeVos urges career staff to be the resistance as Biden takes over uh, her telling her employees, allegedly to those who are staying on. Let me leave you with this. She reportedly said, resist, be the resistance against forces that will derail you from doing what's right for students in everything you do. Please put students first always. I don't know why that's a particularly controversial statement. I, I, I thought that's sort, sort of the point of K-12 through education in particular, but um, apparently that is revolutionary according to the D.C. Press Corps and, of course, the teachers' union. And it wasn't limited to K-12 through and school choice. It also with, was with respect to Title IX reform at uh, the collegiate level. But it's a school choice I want to focus on, and to help us continue the conversation, we 
began yesterday with Father Belmonte. Pleased to be rejoined by uh, Max Eden, who is a City Journal scholar and has written on the topic, including with some specific focus on scholarship programs in Florida. Max, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, um, I mean, just the your first sort of the reaction to um, to the Betsy DeVos uh, alleged statement of, you know, resist the takeover of 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 uh, education by those who would try to defund charter schools while saying we need to fund failing public schools more to say we need new ventilation systems in order to reopen the public schools and anything else that teachers unions demand while we have all of these school systems that are open and operating and handling the COVID matter quite effectively. Um, Betsy DeVos, is, is that controversial, her position? Uh, well, you know, I actually do understand why the D.C. press corps made such a fuss about it, right? Although there is a certain irony to it. You know, our, our federal department of education, all of our federal departments are supposed to be directly responsive to elected officials and to appointed officials by the president. Uh, and it's been no secret that in the Department of Education and elsewhere, uh, there has been substantial, you know, hashtag resistance. It kind of sometimes goes by the moniker of deep state in some conversations from career officials who are allegedly nonpartisan civil servants, but de facto uh, hold a philosophy that is distinctly to the left. Uh, and so I think if there had been uh, if, if former Secretary John King or Ernie Duncan had sent a similar thing to the uh, to his career staff at the beginning of the Trump administration, it probably would have been covered with applause if it would be covered at all. Uh, but there is a certain oddity, I think it's reasonable to admit, to Secretary DeVos, who has been undercut and undermined by a lot of her civil servants all along through leaks to the press and through various ways they've stymied her uh, attempt to effectuate her agenda in calling on the same people to do the same thing to people uh, yeah. who the civil service will want to support. Well, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, I understand, and, and I, I'm, I'm one who clings to the idea that uh, we could be them, they couldn't be us, so um, let's guard that jealously. But, I mean, there are limits to that, and uh, when it comes to something that isn't uh, violative of the Constitution but violative to sort of bureaucratic culture, um, I'm, uh, I'm less offended, let's just uh, put it that way. Um, yeah. when, when we come back, though, I, I, I want to get to a, a discussion on the Florida Hope Scholarships in particular that you've talked about, because in terms of modeling success and, and innovation, as we talked about with Father Belmonte, this seems to be something that people should know more about. And uh, you will find out more about it when we return with Max Eden, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, right after this. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, we're talking K through 12 education with Max Eaton, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And uh, uh, this piece that you, you wrote for thehill.com about Florida's hope scholarships and, and a particular innovation here. Florida seems to have been at the tip of the spear with respect to really targeted scholarships at the K through 12 level over the last couple of decades. The latest being a scholarship for students who were bullied. 
Um, and, you know, so much talk about uh, kids being bullied in schools. And if if the school is unable to stop the bullying, well, this is a way to parachute the kid out to a school where he won't be bullied. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, there have been no shortage of, of smaller scale school choice programs across the country. Most of them are geared towards low income students. You know, Chicago or Illinois has the Illinois uh, student tax credit for low income students. But this is the first school choice program in the country that is geared, you know, not based on economic status, not based on disability status, but uh, in a, a very direct targeted effort to help kids, help get kids out of what can be terrible situations that public schools quite frequently don't address. I mean, something that I've tried to write about over the past few years is that when students are are bullied and victimized and abused in schools, quite frequently the principals will actually have a very strong incentive to not deal with the problem uh, because principals, superintendents are constantly told, hey, you should get your suspension numbers down, you should get your expulsion numbers down. And they often respond to this by simply refusing to enforce the rules, refusing to issue consequences. And so terrible situations can fester where coming to school for some kids feels like torture every day or where they're forced to go to school with a kid who's threatened to kill them multiple times and face no consequences. And so some lawmakers in Florida in 2018 thought, you know, this is unacceptable. We obviously have a long way to go to make schools safer and more supportive place. There's progress that can be made in bullying. But for the kids, you know, for whom school is a nightmare, they deserve a ticket out. And that was the argument that was made very effectively in the Florida legislature and has uh, helped hundreds of kids escape really untenable situations and go to private schools where they seem, according to the data, to be very satisfied, where the discipline goes are stricter, the students feel more supported. Uh, and it's a model that, you know, I wrote a paper about and wrote an op-ed about because I, I think that it should, even in a post-Trump, post-DeVos era with a lot of hostility coming from uh, the federal government and, you know, kind of constant hostility from the Democratic Party on school choice, that it might still be a place where other states could, uh, lawmakers in other states could come together and say, yeah, we should we should let kids who are being bullied, victimized, and abused have a way out if they want to take it. It seems to be, you know, sometimes, uh, right, you have to take uh, piecemeal what you can't get in toto. And uh, this is a, a good example of that, I think. And Florida provided another example. This is now, gosh, probably almost two decades ago. I'm thinking of the McKay Scholarship Program that was specifically for kids with disabilities, where they were in a public school that wasn't uh, abiding their um, federal IDEA requirements, uh, and, uh, and and so they could take the associated dollars to uh, that 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 uh, um, were available uh, for the public school as well. And apply those dollars to uh, any school that would make sure that they have the individual education plan and, and the other requirements of IDEA under federal law. And what you saw, at least the, the last research I looked at, was the parental satisfaction with the kind of instruction their child with a disability was getting, you know, almost tripled as compared to when they were just forced to go to their uh, local government school and sort of fight it out with the local administration if there was some level of dissatisfaction. And this was a way to say, you know, hey, for this cohort of kids that need special attention, we can't fight this out in, in perpetuity. So this is a way also to offload the responsibility uh, on the local public school. And it works for the local public school and it works for 
the uh, the kid, and so it was sort of a win win, and uh, and Florida was able to model that and get that scholarship done for that specific cohort of kids, and this seems to be sort of modeling. Uh, a model based on that successful approach with uh, to kids with uh, dis- disabilities. I agree 100% with that, and I'll just add one more thing, which is the research that I looked at some years back in this also suggested that students with disabilities who remained in traditional public schools actually did better in places where more student more students with disabilities left for private schools, which suggests these schools, public schools, do have limited resources. They do have a lot of rules and regulations and cultural things that stop them from serving students effectively. And so when some students who are particularly difficult to serve leave, that leaves those schools with more bandwidth, so to speak, to serve the students with disabilities who remain. But it also leaves them with a, a larger incentive to serve them because now they realize that if they don't, if they can't keep the parents satisfied, then the kid leaves and then the money leaves with the kid. So it injects just a, a little bit of the necessity for schools to actually serve their customers into the equation, which time and time again, studies show, has you know, perhaps not a dramatic effect, but a, a pretty modest and substantial and consistent positive effect. And, yeah, it, it, and, you know... Uh... Right, and, and and the McKay scholarship is, is something that more states or some uh, facsimile that more states could adopt too. It, it does seem to me that you're getting more give from uh, minority legislators around the country, in particular. I mean, I know it's still a a fraction, a small fraction of the 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 House Democrat Caucus, for example, but there are Democratic members of Congress from urban centers that are for at least some of these targeted school choice programs, where you're talking about. Um, school systems that are just sort of indefensible in terms of what they produce and and the argument that's sort of elegant in its simplicity, why shouldn't those kids have the same educational opportunities as a rich kid or a kid from a politically connected family? It doesn't make any sense. I strongly suspect that in the years to come, in the kind of the, the post-Trump school choice era, as we see traditional public schools increasingly embracing this ideology around critical race theory and identity politics, there's going to be a lot more appetite from Republican legislators to to do things on a party line, to do things that will benefit their constituents directly. And so I suspect that we might start to see a real kind of branching out towards more universal school choice programs. And this this anti-bullying scholarship could be one step in that direction insofar as, you know, any kid in the state who is bullied, who feels uncomfortable, who's made to feel like their school situation is untenable can take advantage of it, whether they come from an inner city or whether they come for, from a nice leafy suburb, because we all know the terrible things can happen to kids at any school. He is Max Eden, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Max, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the show as we uh, close out this uh, installment. We uh, remind you that the purge is still afoot, the uh, effort to uh, rewrite American history, really rewrite American history out of existence, 1619 style. The so-called renaming committee in San Francisco, that doesn't sound too totalitarian, is uh, erasing another name 
And for those who thought uh, that uh, when this started with the defacing and raising of monuments and uh, other such emblems of the purge, that the you know, next thing you know, they're going to go after Lincoln, right? Washington, they're going to take down the Washington Monument. Ha, ha, ha. The renaming committee in San Francisco is erasing the name of the 16th president of the United States from a school because Abraham Lincoln lived a life, quote, unquote, stained by racism. Jeremiah Jeffries, the chairman of this august committee and a first grade teacher, of course, uprooting the problematic names and symbols that currently clutter buildings, streets throughout the city is a worthy endeavor. Only good can come from the public being reflective and intentional about the power of our words, names, and rhetoric within our public institutions. Well, that is a fantastic spin on Newspeak, isn't it? Racist. The true character of Lincoln has been whitewashed to hide his misdeeds toward Native Americans, among other crimes against 21st century Jacobins. Critics uh, have uh, called the effort to rename 44 school sites uh, a, a amateur and a waste of time amid a pandemic, but uh, they make the time. <laughs> yeah. Don't you worry about them, those Jacobins, those Marxist, cultural Marxists wasting their time. They'll make the time, much like uh, Robert De Niro and Heat. I'll make the time. How'd that end for De Niro? It's also received significant support from some communities whose children wear school sweatshirts emblazoned with the name of former slave owners. Of course, uh, we know Jefferson Monroe had to go just as Jefferson and George Mason were expunged from Falls Church School District in Virginia. At least a few of the names on the list raised eyebrows. These are the names to be expunged, including, this is great, Diane Feinstein. She's being removed from the list. Why? Oh, she committed a crime. They uh, went back into her permanent record. She committed a crime when she was the mayor of San Francisco in the 1980s, or maybe it was the 1880s. She's been around so long, I don't know. But it was the 80s. She replaced a vandalized Confederate flag in front of City Hall. For replacing that vandalized Confederate flag in front of City Hall, she's uh, now something akin to Jefferson Davis, according to the renaming committee. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's where things are at. Uh, that continues unabated. And it probably will until then, unless uh, people who uh, want to preserve America's history... And also just sort of America's sense of sanity make the time the way that the Jacobins, the Marxists, the thugs, the identitarians, the safetyists make for this sort of stuff. Stay informed, stay brave, stay sensible, and stay tuned. Join us again tomorrow for The Dane Club. This is the Dan Proft Show.